Hey, everybody. This is episode 138 of Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you all so much for listening today. We're going to be getting into Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. My wife and I recorded this series back in 2020, and uh, I'm just so, so happy to be able to play it for you all on my podcast. We're going to be talking about how Paul's circumstances of being in house arrest, basically in Rome, actually led to the gospel moving forward, to the advancement of the gospel. So as you listen, you'll find that we not only break down these passages, these amazing words from Paul, but we'll also talk about how God will use incredibly difficult circumstances in our lives as well to further the gospel. So anyway, let me give you an update on the album. There are actually going to be 15 songs now. I just wrote one uh, this past Monday, so like eight days ago, and I decided to put it on the album because it just fits so well. It's actually going to be the title track. I didn't think there would be a title track, but there is now. Um, I'm really happy with it too. So I'm going to be very pleased to share that with y'all soon. The album will be released God willing, on October 28th. And um, also enlisted my brother Mike Stibbs to do another lyric video for me. We're going to be doing it on a song called All My Future, which has my buddy Josh Johnson playing some incredible keys on it. Uh, I'm just really pumped about that song. It's about Cyprian of Carthage. Uh, yeah, so look for that lyric video right around the time of the release. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and you can catch everything we do on uh, the YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live. You can also tune into his podcast, Omega Frequency, and also God willing, uh, this Friday we'll be getting back into the Didache. So uh, be, be looking for that at 8 p.m. Central Time on the uh, Omega Frequency Live channel. All right, well, without any further ado... Let's get into episode 138. Uh, a little bit of context. Paul is in prison uh, in Rome. This is around the year 60, 61, somewhere in there. Uh, the emperor Nero is, uh, is running things, and Paul is in chains for for the gospel, and yet the gospel is going forward. And Paul really hits on that uh, today in our text, starting in verse 12. All right, it says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. All right, so let's start off by getting into this idea of the progress of the gospel. Remember, Paul has talked about furthering the gospel. He has talked about defending the gospel. And now he's going to talk about uh, the progress of the gospel, that his circumstances, being in chain, 
in chains in Rome, imprisoned there, is actually helping to cause the gospel to progress. So let's look at this word prog progress, all right? And I'll put it back on the screen again. Yeah. Oh, yes. There we go. All right. So progress, uh, prokope or prokope, comes from uh, pro, which means in front of, and copto, meaning to chop down or to cut or chop down. And Stephanie, we've been in Mozambique before. We're kind of going through the jungles, and sometimes you'll see people with a nice machete mm -hmm. yeah. chopping down. Clearing a path. Yeah, clearing the brush for a path to walk. Yeah. And that's really what Paul is getting at here when he's saying my imprisonment is actually causing progress for the gospel. It's like we're chopping down a path yeah. for like John the Baptist, make way the, or yeah, the, the make straight the way of the Lord or whatever. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, the church is, is growing, but it's still kind of concentrated. And so they need to disperse and they're taking it to all the nations. And so, um, you know, progress is what has to happen in order for that to take place. So you have to have somebody kind of clearing the way and you know, I, I think that this, sorry, I'm not talking. No, good. You're doing good. <laughs> but I, I think that um, with the Philippians, they were probably pretty discouraged by Paul being, you know, in prison and Paul not having a traditional sort of view of like, this is success. This is God blessing your ministry. And so it's got to be pretty um, like a paradox to them to see this is progressing the gospel for me to be in here. This is, this is, not what you think it is. And so he's kind of calling them to shift their their view of things and calling them to change how they're looking at the situation. And that's really important, especially right now for us. Absolutely. there. It's like a lifelong uh, repentance right. that we're called to. Paul kind of hits on this aspect of changing our mind um, and transforming our mind in Romans 12, I believe we talked about that a little bit last week, that we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And last week we talked about how our view of love needs to, needs to change and be transformed to be more in line with what Jesus says love is. And this week, I want to come back to uh, the idea of gospel. Hey, Robert, good to see you, man. Blessed and full of joy. Glad you are with us as well. Uh, so we remember the gospel of Caesar, uh, the, this word gospel is a word that the Romans used quite well. Caesar would go forward and he would allow a, a colony or a territory or country the opportunity to accept, to receive his grace, to receive his good works, uh, to receive the gospel that peace and security would come to you. Uh, you would be transformed to look like Rome, your city would. So many blessings would come your way if you received Caesar's gospel. If you didn't, he would crush you. They would annihilate you. Caesar the dominator, uh, as he was called, would dominate you and crush you. Um, so that's the gospel that was being uh, put forth uh, by the Romans and also the gospel that Caesar Lord and God, the Savior of the world, bringing Pax Romana, Roman peace, which was kind of like a worldwide peace, would come to you. And uh, Jesus says, no, my kingdom is actually the real kingdom. I'm the real king. 
I have the real gospel, the real peace, real grace, real security, all of that. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, quite a paradigm shift that Paul is calling the people to believe in. Uh, in imprisonment actually serves to advance the gospel. That's really weird. But Jesus's kingdom is a real kingdom. Uh, I want to look at Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 17. This is Matthew hitting on the beginning of Jesus's mission. And right from the beginning, he, begin, he starts talking about his kingdom. And here, this is what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the theme of Jesus's preaching. He talks about that over a hundred times. So he's saying, repent, change your mind, change your direction. Uh, come to God because his kingdom is here at hand. Verse 18, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So there you see Jesus advancing the gospel, finding folks that um, maybe at one time in their life thought they might be able to make a rabbi, but may, might be able to become a rabbi, but they weren't quite talented enough at memorizing scripture or what have you. And so uh, a perspective rabbi that they were trying to follow would say, no, you know, I can see that you love the Lord, but go and learn your father's trade. And that's what Peter and Andrew, uh, James and John were all doing, uh, being fishermen, following their, uh, their father's trade. And yet Jesus comes to them as a rabbi saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to teach you to do what I do to transform people by the power of the kingdom of God and God's grace and his Holy Spirit. And so for, the, for them to see a rabbi saying, I think that you can become like me through God's power it was just incredible to them. And so they left everything. They left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus is bringing some good news that uh, is better than the peace that the world can give, better than the security that the world could give. They see Jesus and they value him. Um, they treasure him so much so that they're willing to leave their family, their um, jobs, their security, their finance, all of that behind to get this treasure of Jesus. And so verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. That's the theme of Jesus's message. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And how is he doing that? What, what was accompanying that gospel? He's healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so what 
what had gone awry at the fall. You have death, disease, um, heartbreak. Uh, you have demons coming into the world uh, after like Genesis 6 stuff. And you see Jesus entering this upside down uh, world and making things right side up again. Bringing things as it is in heaven to earth. Yeah, I mean, it, it. there's a lot of times where if you see people that are truly like living um, as maybe like the early Christians would and they're um, choosing the things the way that the early Christians would, you think that they they look like they're really strange, but it's that our view is so distorted a lot of times or um, our view is so colored by our culture. I mean, if we grew up in a different place, we would view things very differently. But the early Christians in so many ways were unified on everything, depend, you know, not dependent on where they grew up or what country they were from. They were in harmony about that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, and without a pope. Right. Yeah, and so um, Jesus is advancing um, the gospel. The gospel is progressing through him. Yes, by healing disease, casting out demons and all that. But there's something about the cross and Jesus' suffering as well that even brings greater progress to the gospel. Paul knows that. And so it's, it's Jesus's death and resurrection that transforms hearts and minds. And that happened to Paul, Jesus' suffering. And so, and we're, we're going to keep on this theme as we go through Philippians because it's so um, uh, pervasive through this book. But Paul's beginning to hint on it now, saying that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, here, let me put that up on the screen for y'all. I apologize. In verse 13, I want you to know that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, that's the special group of soldiers there, and to everyone else. So not just to the soldiers, but everybody's hearing about this guy, Paul, and why he's in prison. And that most of the brethren, and this is not just talking about um, men, but men, women, children, the, those who have been adopted by God's grace into his family, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, when Paul's saying my imprisonment uh, is causing the gospel to advance, um, to move forward and become well known, that word imprisonment just means chains. And it's interesting because that is what happened in the early days of the church at Philippi. That's one of the main ways that the church of Philippi began. If you remember back in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had cast out a demon. It's called a, um, a python spirit, uh, some kind of connection to the temple at Delphi um, with this ability to, what they believe, tell the future. Of course, it's like demons doing a counterfeit of an, a legitimate spiritual gift. And uh, because of that, the slave girl's owners get really upset. They have Paul and Silas arrested saying these men are preaching something that's counter to you know, what we believe. And 
it was. They're preaching a different gospel, a different Lord, the real gospel, the real Lord, the real Savior. And that's not that's not okay with the people at Philippi, this very um, patriotic culture in, in Philippi. And uh, if you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you to go back to the first episode that we did where we really break down what things were like in Philippi and the history of Philippi. But anyways, so they're thrown in prison after they're beaten uh, with rods uh, and they're put in the stocks. Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains, same word as imprisonment, everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And we've talked about this before, but it's, it's pretty ironic that the man, this jailer would ask how he could be saved when the gospel of Caesar declared that he already was saved, that Caesar was the savior of the world. And yet he realized through Paul and Silas's imprisonment, through their joyful suffering, through them singing praise to God and, and praying, um, there's something different about them. He wanted to know right. that power. I mean, I can't imagine if I was working in a prison and everybody had the chance to leave. You yeah. would assume that they were going to make a quick exit. I think that's, I mean, that's such a crazy situation. And, you know, to have that happen where everybody has the potential to leave, but they stay is like what my life has actually been saved. Like this is, yeah. this is, you know, I was, I was going to be executed yeah. because of this. And now I realize there must be something really powerful happening here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's um, worth mentioning as well that Paul had a Roman citizenship card. Basically he was born a citizen because his dad, uh, secured that somehow. And so Paul is born a citizen and it's illegal for a Roman citizen to be beaten without a trial. And yet something, and Paul knows this because he uses his citizenship card at different times for different purposes, but he doesn't use it then in Philippi before he's beaten. He lets this beating and imprisonment take place because he's being sensitive to the spirit and the Holy Spirit's telling him to basically practice meekness, to let God, um, let God lead and to not use the freedom that he has to escape that. And what it shows is that God had a plan for the furthering, the progress of the gospel. And um, just an incredible miracle happens there. Uh, many miracles happen there. Uh, all right. We'll jump back into Philippians 1. We're going to look at verse 13. So my imprisonment in the cause of Christ 
has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that in verse 14, now most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. That's pretty amazing. You have brethren that trust in the Lord are trusting in the Lord because of his imprisonment. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week, that when Paul prays that, um, that the Philippians' love would abound more and more mm-hmm. in real knowledge and, and discernment, depth of insight, uh, it seems like he's hitting on here that though they trust God, they're trusting him more. We need to grow in trust. And I definitely need to grow in trust. Now, I've got trust issues. I don't know about you, but I mean, like if I didn't, I wouldn't sin. You know, like I have a problem. You don't know thinking, about me. We've been married for 12 years. You don't know if I have any issues. <laughs> no, we, I think we all do. I think it's natural to, to, um, to not trust uh, or to, to trust our feelings more than we trust God's plan. So our feelings would tell us I'm in prison or this person that I care about is in prison. This is a hopeless situation. And um, our feelings lie to us because our feelings are in the moment. You know, we're, that's when we act on what is like right in front of us, we miss out on so many things that are coming just down the road, you know, that God has in store for us if we are patient. All right. Now, I want to look at this word trusting a little bit um, because it's pretty neat. So, pithe, uh, pitho, uh, the root of pistis, which is faith, uh, it means to persuade, to be persuaded of what is trustworthy or convinced. That word convinced is really interesting. What does it take to convince you to change your mind? I, know, I mean, or to believe in something? I think it depends on the situation, but um, with, like, you know, not to plug my podcast, but a lot of times, you know, that's one of the the things like what helps you to stay faithful that I try to ask people because they're going through difficult stuff. And one of the things I hear probably more than anything else is like remembering God's faithfulness in other things. So like just this has happened before and God did something really amazing through that. So I'm going to believe that the same thing is going to happen right now. It doesn't mean you're not going to be sad or that you're not going to feel maybe even depressed for a little bit, but, you know, remember it, allowing that to kind of um, permeate your, your being, you know, God is, God is still at work. God has not given up. God is still doing something good, even in the midst of what feels like a terrible situation or feels like the worst thing that I could be going through. And I mean, a lot of people I've talked to, they've gone through things that I can't even imagine how hard that is, but it's like a muscle, you know, it's got to be built up over time. You can't just all of a sudden go through tragedy and stay faithful to God because it's got to be built up in the little stuff, the everyday decisions. Like I'm going to trust God with my finances today, or I'm going to trust God in serving in this way, or I'm going to trust God in doing something for somebody that has hurt me. So it's, it is, it builds. And I mean, Paul definitely saw that happen. So yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things, like Jesus's faithfulness convinced Paul to stay faithful. And you're talking about people's testimonies in your podcast. You talk about, you go, talk about, it's the faithful podcast. Right. And so you're hitting on all these stories of people that are going through just sometimes unimaginable trials. And yet that encourages you to stay 
faithful. And that's really what Paul is talking about here, that um, Paul's imprisonment, Paul's faithfulness while being imprisoned is actually convincing people to stay faithful to Christ and to grow in their faithfulness in Christ. And I really want to look at this passage in Romans 8 that is quoted so much. I hear Romans 8, this particular passage quoted so many times, and it's in a lot of ways taken out of context to just mean like like Paul is only talking about like eternal security, but that's not the the real context of what's going on. It's not about so much like where we're gonna end up. Right. It's about the present. Yeah. It it's so it's so many layers. I mean, it's something he's he's speaking in a very literal sense in a lot of us, you know, it's like I've been through this and it's not gonna separate, you know. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let's so let's let's go after it. Uh Romans eight, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's, he's talking about how the church is in tribulation. They're being delivered over to death. They are considered sheep to be slaughtered. This is a trying time for the people in Rome. It is not safe to be a Christian in Rome at this time. And, uh, you know, he's been talking in chapter six about presenting the members of your body to God as like an instrument of righteousness, as a weapon of righteousness. And he's talking about the power of sin waging war on us to try to convince us to not be faithful. And then he really develops that in the earlier part of Romans 8, talking about the spirit and the flesh being at war against each other. But we need to follow the spirit. And if we suffer for him, uh, we will be called his sons. Uh, as Paul talks about in Romans 8. Uh, it's it's just incredible. They're in the real struggle where it's very tempting to be unfaithful. And so one of the main arguments that Paul points to is the great love of God that nothing can separate us from his love for us now, now in our daily walk in the midst of trials. And I'm glad that nothing can separate me from his love and that he's going to love me if I die. The great love, but I need to trust more in his love for me right now. That's I struggle more with that 
than believing that God's going to be faithful to me when I die. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of us, like death feels a long way off for one thing. I mean, it may not be. It may be, you know, tomorrow. But I think that in trusting in these little things, are little, little, seemingly little things, and and these little things day to day, believing that God really cares about those, I think is, it shows really where our trust is. Like, is our trust in our money? Is that what's going to take care of us? I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts lately that have talked about how coronavirus has affected the economy and specifically different companies and stuff. And um, like, people, you realize a lot of times like finances is, it's, it's really, really tough. And, and I'm not trying to downplay that at all, but you start to see where we, we really put our trust a lot of times when, you know, you or I have lost our jobs for one reason or another, it is a hard time to go through. And every time we have to like remind each other, like God's going to take care of this. He always has. And that doesn't mean you like act foolishly, you know, you don't just say, okay, God's going to take care of it. I'm going to go buy a brand new car because it's going to be all right. But I mean, you know, you you trust that God is going to take care of you. And that may not look like you're expecting it to look. Mm-hmm. And it may be longer and harder than you expect it to look, or hard, harder than you expect it to be. But it, he's still there and he's still faithful. And, you know, we should be asking like, what if, God, what do you want me to be getting out of this time? God, what, how am I, how can I grow to look more like you in this time? Or, how can I be more of a reflection of you to the world? Mm. Oh, those are great. Uh, we, uh, oh, we got, got some comments. One ahead, blessed and full of joy. She says, amen. No matter what we go through in the fallen world or what the devil may throw at us, God will work all things out for the good for those who love him. Amen. And Olga says, I often hear that if we suffer for him, we will be called his sons. What is the justification for this belief? I don't understand how God would want his children to suffer. That's a really good question. Well, I mean, I don't think that um, we have, we look at it a lot of times from our human perspective. And I think that um, even from a parental perspective, it's hard to watch my kids suffer. But a lot of times if I'm doing everything for them or if I'm making their life, you know, too easy, then they're not growing in that time. They're not, um, they're not maturing and they're not, um, they're not really seeing what they're capable of in a sense. Um, I don't think it, I mean, I don't think everybody's going to be suffering like Job did. I mean, obviously most people are never going to encounter that kind of suffering. Uh, but I think that our suffering matures us. And it, and also it, it helps us to understand what Jesus went through and it helps us to reflect Jesus more. Um, I mean, personally, I can say that those are the times when I was the closest to God because I felt like I, I had to be. Like I, I felt too weak to go on on my own uh, when I was really, really suffering, not just like going through a difficult day or something. Like when I'm going through a really hard season, that's when I really, I don't know. Trust, learn to trust. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's good to keep in context what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter one. He's saying that it's it's faithful suffering gets people's attention. That's the testimony from, from Jesus all the way through the early church and even to today. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the main ways that uh, the gospel goes forward in places like Iran, in places like Saudi Arabia, in places like China. Uh, you know, China, the, the official religion of China is atheism. Right. And no God, no God at all. It's not Buddhism at all. It's atheism. And yet the church in China is just, it's snowballing almost out of control in a good way. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful because people who basically say all that's here to live for is the present, just to eat, drink, and be happy. You know, if there's no resurrection, just enjoy today because tomorrow we die. I mean, that's Paul basically quoting like an atheistic philosophy in 1 Corinthians 15. And so what actually convinces these people in China uh, of the truth of the gospel, of the truth of a resurrection is people who are willingly suffering now because they know now our present is only just, it's a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And so like uh, Justin Martyr in 160 is is writing an apology to the Roman emperor. And one of the things he says is that the more we are mown down by you, the more we grow in number. Tertullian says in uh, around 197, in his first apology to the Roman emperor, he says that the blood of martyrs is seed. Jesus says in John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a, a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds, and and he, what he's illustrating there is like a like we outside in our house we have a loquat tree, right? And uh, you know that produces all kinds of seeds. I mean, there are just hundreds of these things, and it makes my dog vomit. It's terrible, but as long as those loquat seeds stay on top of the ground, it's just one loquat fruit, you know, one loquat seed of fruit, you know, and that's great and all, but it's not going to produce a tree. In order for that a new loquat tree to to come about, that seed has to go down into the dirt. But my goodness, how many seeds, how many, how many loquats are in a loquat seed? And so Paul is just overwhelmed that he, uh, you see it in Acts 9, that he was one of the greatest enemies of the cross, and yet Jesus would die for him and try to save him. And so Paul is like, I have to let so many, I got to let everybody know about this incredible treasure that is Jesus Christ. And so whatever can advance this, I want to do that. And so uh, I I do want to hit on your particular question from Romans 8. I'm going to read this passage for you. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if Christ Jesus is in you, this is in verse 10, if Christ Jesus is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, my brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, 
so that also we may be glorified with him. And yet I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he goes on, but uh, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, which dwells in you. And that life that he's talking about is not just this going to heaven when you die, but it's the spirit of Jesus himself transforming you to become more and more conformed to his image as Paul writes about later in Romans 8. And so if we're becoming more like Jesus in, in, in thought, in, in our uh, desires, in our actions, well, Jesus came down to bring more and more people into the family of God. He's trying to let his father's house be full. And so whatever will bring more people into God's house, that's what he wants. And so if we are being changed into the image of God and our thoughts are being transformed to be into his image, our, our view of suffering actually begins to change and not seeing it as a terrible thing, but actually seeing it as a winsome thing, a way to win people, to convince people, as Paul says, of the truth of the gospel so that they too can become part of God's family. That's, that's the best that I can do right now. So yeah. no, I think, I think that's good. I think that's, I, I think it's, it's hard to understand. It's something that is not, I mean, it's not for a lot of people will never really get that because we want life to be pretty comfortable and I get that. I think in, in practice, I show that I want my life to be pretty comfortable most of the time. But um, I think that when I kind of take that bird's eye view of like looking at my life and what my life is going to look like as a whole, I really want my life to count. And I, we see how much it, it affects other people when we suffer. And uh, we suffer well, not just not just suffering and complaining about it. Um, I'm really good at that, but um, seeking God in the midst of that. Yeah, and Paul is giving uh, basically an apologetic for not just the gospel, but also suffering here in Philippians 1. He's telling like why it's so powerful. And so I'm going to put these verses up on the screen again. Uh, in Philippians 1.14, up here, the most of the brethren trusting, being convinced— in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Yeah, that's, you know? that's funny also because it's like they look at him in prison and what got him into prison, and it gives them more courage to speak up. Yeah, that will get them into trouble yeah, too. Yeah, that they might end up right beside him. Yeah. Yeah. Now this word have, it's so, to me, it's really interesting how like a simple word like have can have a very impactful, uh, sorry, can be very impactful. What, what's that? There's another question. That's oh, I'm sorry. Let me, uh, what is apologetic? Apologetic is a defense. How do you defend your family? Paul is giving a defense for his family, a defense for the family of God, a defense for the gospel of Not God. Not like a physical defense, like a justification for it's why a, he believes. Yes, he believes. and a spiritual defense. Yeah. Like Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter six, that our, we, our bodies are weapons. Our hands, our words, our mouths, our eyes are weapons. And they can either be used for uh, 
the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Jesus. And so Paul is urging us to present our bodies as weapons, as a defense of the gospel. But in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul also says that the weapons that we fight with are not fleshly, they're not carnal, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds of Satan. And so that's the, um, oh man, Andrew, that's a great verse. Yeah, uh, tough verse to comprehend like Psalm 116, 15, precious in, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints or his godly ones. Yeah, that's awesome. What was the uh, question that it's I missed? Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. So you got that. All right. So this word have has a really interesting meaning. Uh, tolomao means bold courage, properly to show daring courage necessary for a valid risk. There are a lot of <laughs> risks that people take that are not valid, that are- Like uh, the Tide Pod Challenge or something. Yeah, or your brother jumping off the roof into the pool. Yeah. You know, like- Or trying to hitchhike. <laughs> yeah, like that's not a worthy challenge. Yeah. But this is like, Paul's saying- um, these brethren are trusting in the Lord because of, him, because of his imprisonment and they are receiving this bold courage. They are being infused with this bold courage to risk their lives for the gospel, putting fear behind and embracing the fruit that lies ahead for taking this necessary risk. And it is a necessary risk, your family, to have more family. It's a, it's a risk to adopt, but it's a necessary risk. Right. Yeah, all right, and so continuing Philippians 1, the most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far, have far more courage. All right, so this far more is also interesting because far more, uh, perisos, uh, yeah, perisos is an adjective derived from peri, which means all around and excess. So it's like extraordinarily exceeding going past what is anticipated. So it's interesting, like, you know, these Romans are encountering these people called Christians, and they would expect these Christians, if they believe in a different king, in a different gospel, well, everyone else they encounter will pick up weapons to fight for that. And yet these Christians are dying for it. It takes, a, it takes a ton of courage to pick up a weapon and fight against someone else. But I think one of the things that Jesus shows us is that it takes far more courage to die for something than to kill for something. Yeah, I think a lot of times when people want you or want wanted people to renounce their faith, I don't think that the goal was for them to kill them. I think that the goal was for them to just scare them enough that they change their mind and they worship whatever it is. Right. And I think that that, you know, they think that when they, you know, the fear of death is what's going to inspire them to change their mind, but it doesn't, then that's, that's so profound to those that are inflicting that. Like, I mean, look at the, the guard when Jesus was on the cross. I mean, they just, the people that were watching, I mean, some were hardened more and some were, like really cut to the heart. Like this, this person must have been the son of God because this, the way that they suffered and the way that they loved in the midst of this was so powerful. 
And it's interesting that you bring that up. That Are we passage going there from next? Mark 15. We're going to go there. Not quite yet, okay. but but we're going there soon. Um, I don't get to see the notes ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could. Yeah, I, I choose not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they go past what's anticipated and their courage does. And that's one of the things that's so shocking about Christians being willing to suffer, not to inflict suffering, but to suffer for their enemies. We comfort our oppressors and make them our friends. I believe that's what uh, Aristides says in one of his in, in his main apology. We comfort our oppressors and make them our friends. That's that's not anticipated at all. So they're going beyond a worldly courage. Like Jesus says, my peace is not of this world, but it's a real peace. Um, it goes beyond the peace of this world, peace that surpasses understanding. Well, these Christians, their courage goes beyond what's anticipated. And so it's shocking to these Romans, just like it shocked the jailer in Acts 16. Paul and Silas's courage and their love shocked him. It goes beyond what's anticipated. All right, so they have far more courage, getting in back into verse 14. Uh, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know, I've heard it said, you know, preach the gospel at all times, but if necessary, use words. But how can they hear if no one will speak the words? How can they hear? You got to hear the gospel to believe the gospel. But if no one's speaking it, they can't hear it. So it's kind of cool, this word speak or say, they have far more courage to speak the word of God. Uh, I've seen, I've, I've led a few new believer class classes, um, new believer orientations or new member, church member orientations. I've been in a few of those. And um, I never did what Jesus did in his new, new disciple orientation. Uh, and I probably should have. So in Matthew 10, Jesus has just called the 12 the 12 uh, apostles. And listen to some of the words that he says. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Mind you, remember, this is their, their <laughs> orientation. It's like day one. Yeah. <laughs> to right, being his apostle. Uh, so I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a witness, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. You know, I, this as you're reading this, it made me think of that phrase, like counting the cost. And um, a thought kind of popped in my head that like, you know, Jesus wanted them to count the cost on the front end. At some point, we're all going to count the cost, right? We're going to decide if Jesus is worth it or not. We're going to be put in a situation where our actions are going to demonstrate he's either worth it or he's not. And Jesus was like, hey, I want to know on the front end, do you understand what you're getting yourself into? And I think a lot of times, I mean, I can only speak for like the kind of churches that I've been in, but I'm assuming that oh, there's a lot of churches similar to that out in the world. But like there's 
there's been a lot of new member type things where they're like, you know, we want you to be a part of this and to serve in some way, but there's no talk of, or even when I was, you know, led to the Lord or, you know, we may raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus, go pray with this person. There's no talk of, this is what's going to be ahead for you. There's nothing like this. It's like, we're so excited for you. And we are, you know, I mean, that is Here's your mug and your water bottle. Yeah. Jacuzzi. I, I remember when I, I, <laughs> I first got baptized, I got took out for seafood. Yeah. <laughs> I got celebrated, but nobody told me you're going to face really hard stuff. And there's going to come a point where you have to decide, is this worth it? And yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I was really young when I first got baptized, but I think that that's important to to kind of instill that from the front end, because obviously we want to model our ministry as much as we can after what Jesus did. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Count the cost on the front end or count it later when it's, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so they, we, we need to speak without fear. And those are some scary situations. And yet these people are having more and more courage to speak without fear. Uh, this word, uh, afabos. Yeah. I want to say phobos, but that's backwards. Afabos. You've only got your weird Greek characters there and no little pronunciation for me to help you out with that one. <laughs> but it's it's without fear yeah. or, or boldly. And so I wanted to highlight a woman that um, God brought to my mind earlier uh, in the week. Someone who was inspired by someone else's suffering to uh, live for the gospel. This is Luke 8.1. Uh, Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. We've heard that before. That is the theme of his message. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, or Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, or uh, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Now, this Herod, jo- Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, this Herod is the Herod that killed Jesus's cousin, John. Hmm. John the Baptist. Now, John was a very popular guy. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He was incredibly popular. People from all over Not Judea. With Herod. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Come in to see him. And it's so interesting because like today, people think if you want to be a popular preacher, you got to talk about family and money and jobs. I don't think you talk about money. Well, like how to become, how to become more wealthy. <laughs> have more money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and work and family like real and life work kinda, and family. Yeah, like stuff that's applicable to every day. Yeah. You know. And you got to keep the negativity out of it. Yeah. And yet John is like, you brood of vipers. <laughs> His whole message is repent. Yeah. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know? Yeah. How are you going to escape God's judgment? You yeah. know, I baptize with water, but one coming after me, he's going to baptize you with fire. You know, like he's, he's laying it down. John is. And then he sees Herod out there and he is. King Herod, and he's like, you sucker, you need to repent right now because you got your brother Philip's wife and you need to repent of that. Mm. 
And Herod is like, mm, that's not happening in my kingdom. You're going to jail. And what's interesting, though, is that Herod likes to visit John. There's something about John's boldness and courage that's intriguing to Herod. But his wife is pretty upset by that. She doesn't like being told that she's an adulteress. And so one day on Herod's birthday, uh, Herod's brother's wife that he's living with, um, her daughter gives um, a dance, a very provocative a dance, dance. That got people excited. Yeah, to so. the point where Herod says, look, I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom. And so the little girl runs to her mom and she says, well, what should I ask for? And the mom says, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod didn't want to be like mocked by his guests. And so we had John beheaded there in the prison. And yet, what does that do in the life of Joanna? Does that cause Joanna to shrink back? Or does it cause her to step out? So Joanna steps out and begins following Jesus with some of these other women disciples and out of her own income, is supporting Jesus and the apostles. It's pretty bold. And, you know, Jesus remembers that stuff. It's interesting who the first witnesses of the resurrection are, who the first heralds of the gospel are. This is in Luke 24, in verse 1, on the first day of the week. So this is Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, at early dawn, there came to the tomb, they came to the tomb, who's they? We're going to find out in a little bit. They came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, why have you... Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. So these are angels that are heralding the gospel to the women. And that kind of has a, um, a contagious effect on them. Verse 8, and they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They had to use words, of course. Now they were the they. Who's the they? They were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And the apostles thought it was foolishness, huh. you know, but they were heralding it. They were speaking this good news without fear. Now, I want to get to uh, what you were talking about earlier with the centurion that was overseeing Jesus's uh, crucifixion. So this is Mark 15, starting in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, saw the way he died, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, for him to say that Jesus is the son of God, this one hanging up on a cross, crucified, nails in hand, nails in feet, spear has gone into the side. He is dead, dead king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, as the sign says, king of the Jews. And yet this Roman centurion is willing to put his life on the line by saying, this man is the son of God, not Caesar. This man is the son of God. It says when he saw the way that Jesus died, he said that. That's Mark's defense. That's Mark's apology. And it starts at the very beginning. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, right from the beginning of Mark's gospel to the very end, he's showing how Jesus is the real Caesar. He is the ultimate Caesar. He has the real gospel, the real peace. He's the real Savior of the world. So we've been talking about how other people's faithfulness and suffering convinces us of the truth of the gospel and convinces us to also be faithful, which convinces other people. I want to highlight um, believers' response to the Decian persecution that began around 249 AD. And one of the main bishops who writes about uh, writes during this time period is Cyprian. Uh, he's the bishop of Carthage and just a phenomenal follower of Jesus and phenomenal writer. Uh, love the guy. I'm looking forward to eventually doing a breakdown on him for the Patreon channel. Let me break down a few of the things that were happening to the Christians during the DCN persecution. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Just gonna, there, there are a lot of different things that were happening. These are four particular people. Um, I'm not going to put their names in there, but uh, you can read about this on like Bible tools. You can read a breakdown of each of the great persecutions during the anti-Nicene age. But so you got one person who was put into a leather bag for the cause of Christ, put into a leather bag together with a number of serpents and scorpions, and in that condition was thrown into the sea. Oh my. Can you imagine that? Like, Oh, that's like the two of my worst fears together in one. Two? Well, I mean, like drowning. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like claustrophobia as well. Oh. Because you're not just drowning, but you're being first sealed in a leather bag. And you're having tons of snakes and scorpions thrown in there with you. This is when it's easier to talk about enduring faithfully in, you know, in concept rather than imagining that. So, I mean, it's got it's got to be something that you're choosing on a daily basis, nobody is strong enough in that moment, just if they've never chosen to really follow Jesus, maybe even standing up for their faith, making those you know difficult decisions with friends, is going to be able to just, I'm going to turn this on right now. And It's not a light switch. No. It's like the muscle thing yeah. that you've been talking about. Ugh. But it's also believing that in our weakness, God will be strong, that his power is going to be made perfect in our weakness. We're going to need... We're going to need that big time, his grace to be sufficient for us. So look at this next. So these are Christians. They were beaten 
with staves. They were torn with, sorry, I got to put this up. They were beaten with staves torn with hooks, like fishing hooks, and at length burnt in the fire. Another person was scourged, torn with iron hooks, scorched with lighted torches, and at length beheaded. And then you have this woman. This is just incredible. So first she was scourged. Now that can either be with like the cat of nine tails, like what happened with Jesus, or scourge can also be used to talk about like being beaten with rods 39 times. Or yeah, like Paul, like happened to Paul a few times. And also in Philippi, he wasn't, didn't have like the cat of nine tails at Philippi because that would, that's going to kill you. You're going to bleed to death. But so this first, this woman was scourged. Then she was burned with red hot irons. Then she was torn with sharp hooks. But having borne these torments with admirable fortitude, she was next laid naked upon live coals intermingled with glass. And then she was taken back to prison. So she she didn't die right there? Right. Oh, gosh. Like, when I think about, like, I would, I'd like to, to give my life for Jesus, but I want it to be quick, you know? Shoot me Just shoot me in the head or behead me or whatever. I don't think you get the choice, though. But my goodness, you see these Christians that are so convinced of the love of God and they're so convinced of the resurrection. Yeah. That this is just a temporary passing quick thing. It's just a blink of the eye, blink of the eye. They're so looking forward to being with Jesus. So let me read for you in this time the way the bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, who was hunted down and martyred as well. Okay, so this guy is not just all talk and no action. I mean, he was severely persecuted for the gospel. What he wrote to um, Fortunatus, a leader in one of the churches. All right, let me put this up here. He says, I've considered it as a useful and wholesome plan in an exhortation so needful is that which may make martyrs to set down only those things which God speaks wherewith Christ exhorts his servants to martyrdom. Okay, he says, he says like, look, we're in this terrible time. I'm not going to put anything in front of you except the things which Christ has talked about, where Christ has called us to martyrdom, all right? Then he says, those divine precepts themselves must be supplied. Think Matthew 10, Matthew 12. Like, think about these, uh, Matthew 24, all right? Those divine precepts must be supplied. People need to hear the words of Christ, as it were, for what? For arms, like for combatants. So he's saying the teachings of Christ are weapons. Mm. And that when we're standing in front of oppressors and persecutors, we are at war. Dying is waging war. Persevering in those situations is waging war mm. for the gospel. He says, let them be incitements of the warlike trumpet. Wake people up, get their attention. Let them be the clarion blast for the warriors. Let the ears be roused by them. Let the minds be prepared by them. Let the powers of both soul and body be strengthened to all endurance of suffering. Let us 
only who, by the Lord's permission, have given the first baptism to believers, also prepare each one for the second. Now, that's what we're talking about, new members. He's thinking back to Matthew 10 stuff. These guys have been baptized. They're following Jesus now. And he's saying, don't just prepare people for the first baptism, prepare them for the second. What comes to your mind when you hear that? Think about in, I believe it's Mark 10. I believe it's either Mark 9 or Mark 10, where James and John come to Jesus and they say, Master, let one of us sit on your right and one on your left when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, do you know what you're talking about? Do you really know what you're asking? Can you undergo the baptism that I will be baptized with? Oh, okay. And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely we can. Yep, we got And this. what does Jesus say? You're gonna. Yeah. You're going to be baptism, baptized with the baptism that I'm about to undergo. But for, for you to sit on my right and left, that's not, and you know, those have already been decided. He's probably speaking about the, the insurrectionists. Mm-hmm. They're on the crosses, also undergoing a baptism. Yeah. And of course, James is beheaded by Herod. And John, according to tradition, is thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil, yet he is not burned. Mm. And because of that, Domitian sends him off to the island of Patmos. (laughs) Sorry we're laughing about that, but there there was a time when I was preaching a message. I'll just give this little... little tidbit. And I was talking about John being exiled to the Galapagos Islands. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty Darwin, of course. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Stephanie's just looking at me like, Oh, not right. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Terrible. All right. But anyways, so let, let me go back to Cyprian real quick. Let us only who by the Lord's permission have given the first baptism baptism to believers also prepare each one for the second baptism, urging and teaching that this is a baptism greater in grace. He's talking about martyrdom, and he's saying that's even greater than actually being baptized. It's greater in grace. It's more powerful. It's, it's a more powerful demonstration of God's favor. It's more lofty in power more precious in honor, a baptism wherein angels baptize, a baptism in which God and his Christ exult, a baptism after which no one sins anymore, a baptism which completes the increase of our faith, a baptism which, as we withdraw from the world, immediately associates us with God. In the baptism of water is received the remissions of sins. In the baptism of blood, the crown of virtues. This thing is to be embraced and desired and to be asked for in all the entreaties of our petitions that we who are God's servants should also be his friends. He's saying every time you pray, you should ask to die for Jesus while they're in the midst of all those terrible tortures that I was talking about. I feel like something needs to be said, though, Um, just to make sure that people that are listening are clear. This is not saying that um, we need to seek out these opportunities just 
to basically stir up a fight all the time. Right. Like we are, we're living our lives and we're being obedient to the spirit. We're not going outside of that in order to hasten this process. Right. Like it is of all the ways that we could give our life, the ones that, the ones that matter the most in eternity, I guess. I mean, not that, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, I hope y'all don't hear me wrong, but it, it's important. You know, we martyrs are, are you know, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So it, it is, it brings about so much good. I just want to make sure that people understand that we're not like, yeah, we're going to do this for Jesus. And we're going to stir up and look for this fight that God has not called us to. But we are, and right now we live in a country where that's that may be less likely to happen, but who knows what's coming down the pike and the pike? Yeah. Is that the right phrase? That's right. Okay. I didn't know if like it was... Like the turnpike. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded weird. But who knows what's coming ahead for us? And um, we are all going to endure suffering and how we endure it matters. And in other countries, this is something that people face maybe more often. But um, yeah, I just want to make sure that the people that are listening are clear that this does not mean that we're like, we're like basically, you know, trying to commit suicide for Jesus. This is nothing like that. This is just not being afraid of what man can do to you because God controls our eternity. Yeah, Cyprian encouraged us to take all of Jesus's words into consideration. And so like one of the things Jesus says concerning persecution is when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. And you see that happening with people like Polycarp, who was the disciple of the apostle John. They were persecuting him and rounding up other Christians and seeking him out. And so he tried to evade that capture and he fled. There was a boy that they caught who knew where Polycarp was. And they like threatened him. And this young boy basically gave up Polycarp's position where he was. But when they came to the house, Polycarp did not try to go to war against them in a physical manner. He invited them in. He prepared food for them. He like a banquet for them. And he asked them if he could pray for an hour, basically. And he did. And this was very impactful upon those soldiers that came to round him up. Very impactful for them. So like you don't, you see him like following Jesus's teaching basically. You know, so like if they're persecuting one city, flee to the next. But once they got you, like go beyond expectation in the way that you love your enemies. Yeah. So what would you die for? Let me put some of them up on a screen that I think most people will recognize. So this is one of the last scenes from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, okay. And that right there is the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And this German woman who is like a spy, she has got this grail. Mm -hmm. And this great earthquake happened and it fell out of her hands. And she's about to die. Indy catches her and he can pull her up, but she's torn. She's torn between life and the treasure. Mm. Life and the treasure. Now, um, to her credit, there is courage there that she is willing to risk her life for this treasure. It's the wrong kind of treasure, though. 
So, like, when I hear that, what I think is, like, is Jesus that dear to me? Oh. Is Jesus that precious to me? <laughs> is, is the gospel that true to me? And I hope it will be mm-hmm. in that time, you know, game time. Yeah. I don't know. What thoughts are you having? I mean, I keep coming back to it, but the thought that like, I mean, it's so hard for me to, to choose Jesus in the little things. And um, I have to kind of force myself more to um, do the things that scare us um, in order that, you know, we actually can say, I am willing to give my life for this. And I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of people that say they're willing to die for Jesus. Um, I think it's it feels like something that we probably won't ever have to do. And it feels like, okay, if, I'm, if I die, I'm with Jesus right away. Like, that's it. It's what about done. going to prison? Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's, you put it in a different context. You change the wording just a tiny bit and you realize that they're really not as sold out to Jesus as they thought. Like if you say, would you be willing to die in a leather bag thrown into the water with a bunch of snakes? Well, well, that changes things. Or would you be willing to go to prison? I think we have to really search our hearts and see. And I don't, I mean, God is, God is kind to us. God is so kind and he understands how challenging this is. But and I don't think that if I was really scared of that, that that's a bad thing and God's going to like kick me out. But I would hate to be put in a situation where I denied Jesus or I, I, I shied away from something where I know I should have done more. You know, Jesus says like, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And like, I remember when a water moccasin came into our house, right? (laughs) That was crazy. It was nuts. So it was on a a rainy day and we, I don't know, it was in the afternoon. We were about to pick up our daughter from school. Um, The dogs really needed to go outside to use the restroom. I opened the back door. They'd like jump out, just take off running. It's a downpour, right? In that second, now, I, I was also like a month out of uh, ACL replacement. And so I'm on crutches and I see this water moccasin come right at my feet. And I, up until that point, I basically had a, a phobia uh, of snakes, like freak me out phobia. But I got a new bride standing close to me. <laughs> And it's just something came over me and I saw like in my mind's eye a picture of, you know, the Passion of the Christ where in the, the opening scene where he just like steps on the big python, right? And this water moccasin was not a python, but it's a water moccasin nonetheless. And just, I don't know how it happened. It's a million to one shot, Doc, you know, yeah. just a million to one. But like, I just stepped as it's coming. And this all happens in like literally a second. And I got my my foot right on top of its neck. And I'm screaming for Stephanie to get us a, a knife, you know, <laughs> to bring me the biggest knife that you have. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's 
I don't think it was, you know, I just became brave, you know, in that second. I think it was just this like love for Stephanie that just over, override, I don't know, overrode. I, I don't know what the proper terminology is, but my, my fear was overridden <laughs> yeah. by love uh, in that moment. And you just react. And that woman in um, in the last crusade, like her, where her treasure is, her heart's there also. Do you treasure Jesus in the gospel? Jesus treasures you. I want you to know that. I want you to know how much Jesus treasures you. This is from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy, from being overjoyed, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. So if he has the field, then he's got the treasure. And there are two ways to look at this parable. One is that you are the treasure. Jesus saw you, his enemy, while you're sinning, the enemy of the gospel, and yet he looks at you and says, I will give up everything to get you. Whoever you are, he gave up everything, starting from leaving heaven to come down as a baby and grow up with a questionable paternity and people mocking him that way, a man well acquainted with sorrows, Mocked, betrayed, insulted, murder threats, tortured, abused, spit on, beard ripped out, scourged, crucified to get you. But there's another side to that. And the other side is, as Jesus treasured you, we, we are to treasure Jesus. If we really treasure him, we will make him the treasure that this man um, left everything to get. We give it all away to have him. As Paul says later on in, in Philippians, that nothing compares to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing him. I just want to kind of wrap this up by highlighting the way Christians and Paul viewed this treasure and what they were willing to do and how they were willing to view suffering in light of the surpassing greatness of the treasure that is Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 4.1, and we're just going to wrap it up. Or chapter 4. Paul says, Since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart mercy that we've received, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at his son. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Notice Caesar was 
preaching himself as Lord. And Paul's like, no, we don't do that. We preach Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus's sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels like our bodies. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. For we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Why? so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Does that sound like Romans 8? So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary, just momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are not seen are Things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. Paul's circumstances turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And they caused the Christians there in Philippi and in Rome to trust more and more in the Lord and have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So, How does the Lord want to use your present circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel? How does God want to use your present circumstances? It may feel like an imprisonment. How does God want to use your present circumstances for the advancement of the gospel? fire of the old days like a child before hope fades disappointment sets in wake me to your wonder and shake me from this slumber and make me burn with passion 